Westinghouse Broadcasting Company brings you The Sound of War, the actual sound record of World War II, 2,191 days from the time Hitler's Panzer divisions moved across the Polish borders to the ceremony of the Japanese surrender aboard the United States battleship Missouri in Tokyo Bay. World War II, the most terrible period of death and destruction in the long history of man. World War II, a drama preserved for all time through the medium of radio, an era never to be forgotten. Tonight, Munich, victory without bloodshed. This is the sound of war. It is an air raid signal. It was heard in Danzig on September 1st, 1939. Two days later, it was heard in London, Paris, and Berlin. And before many months would go by, this strange sound would be heard in strange places with strange-sounding names. Names like Koblenz, Essen, Louvain, and Timor. In every part of the globe, in every hour of the day, it is the sound of war. Technically, World War II had an official beginning. This was on September 1st, 1939, when German Panzer divisions moved across the Polish border. To many, though, the war began four years earlier. It is October 3rd, 1935, the place Northeast Africa. The situation? Italian armies, based in Italian Eritrea, move across the borders of one of the oldest Christian nations in the world, Ethiopia. Il Duce Mussolini has an old score to settle with the Ethiopians dating back to 1896. Then Italian troops were massacred at Adawa in an ill-fated attempt to conquer Ethiopia. Then it was men against men. Now it was men against steel. The Italians had the steel. The League of Nations, without United States participation, acted quickly. They condemned the invasion and voted economic sanctions against Italy. It proved ineffective. The great experiment had failed. The theory of international law was put to shame. In Rome in May of 1936, Mussolini spoke to the Italian people. The Duce has told them that the war is over. And now they will go back to their homes and they will realize that in seven months Italy has accomplished one of the greatest military feats known in history. You hear now the band in the square playing and the people are still calling him and the balcony is still lighted and he will appear again. Yes, he has just appeared at this moment. Standing on the balcony, this lonely figure of a man who has led 34 million to this colossal victory in spite of sanctions, in spite of the hostility of the world. Mussolini said, in seven months, we have accomplished one of the greatest military feats in history. A recapitulation of the strength of the warring nations, attacking for Italy 250,000 well-trained troops with 150,000 in reserve. 
defending for Ethiopia less than 50,000 tribesmen. Attacking for Italy, a combined juggernaut of tanks, artillery, and planes. Defending for Ethiopia, half-naked natives with ancient muskets, swords, and spears. Italy had accomplished one of the great military feats of history. World collective security was now a memory. A new word had entered the international language. Appeasement. It is March 1938. A heavily armed Germany has become one of the most powerful nations in the world. Under Chancellor Adolf Hitler, they mobilize. In the spring of 1938, they strike. If our will is strong enough, then nothing can fail. Germany. That was Chancellor Adolf Hitler. He is speaking at Nuremberg. He attacks the League of Nations. He attacks France and Great Britain. He attacks all the democracies of the world. Now, two years after occupying the Rhineland without bloodshed, he looks to Austria. Chancellor von Schuschnigg of Austria visits the Führer at Berchtesgarten. The Führer says, How have you dared all these years suppress and torture my people, my German people in Austria? Schuschnigg listens. German armies are mobilized on their border. Hitler shows Schuschnigg the plan for the German attack. Schuschnigg speaks by radio to the Austrian people. When he finishes, he is weeping. He has told them that Austria is to become part of Germany. May 1938. Hitler is now looking south to the democracy of Czechoslovakia. Czechoslovakia, a product of the peace of World War I, a conglomeration of many speaking minority groups, living in the now united provinces of Bohemia, Moravia, and Austria, Silesia, and the Hungarian provinces of Slovakia and Ruthenia. Czechoslovakia, led by the world-revered Thomas Masaryk and Edward Benish, a country of 14 million Czechs, Slovaks, Magyars, Ruthenians, Poles, Jews, and three-quarters of a million unhappy Germans. The Germans of the Sudetenland. Hitler sees his opportunity. He speaks to the Reichstag. Now in May, two Germans are killed along the Czech-German border. Hitler again speaks. We must save our German brothers in the Sudetenland, he says. These conditions can no longer be tolerated. He tells the Sudetenland Germans they can now count upon the Führer and Germany for their protection. He sends German troops to the Czechoslovakian border. The Czechs are of strong heart. They are the most powerful small nation in Europe. They have a standing army of close to 200,000 with more than a million men in the trained reserve. They are not afraid. 
The Czechs are also strong in diplomacy. If attacked, France by treaty is obligated to come to their aid. Great Britain, by tradition, would march with France. Russia would also oppose the German armies. Hitler withdraws his troops. The withdrawal is temporary. At the end of May 1938, he tells his generals, we will smash Czechoslovakia by force in the near future. He sets October 1st for Operation Green, the invasion of Czechoslovakia. Now the four summer months of 1938. The Chancellor screams his hate at the Czechs. Said Adolf Hitler, these atrocities must cease. Czechoslovakia must renounce all its foreign alliances. A Nazi state must be established inside Czechoslovakia. France and Great Britain watched. One major voice cried out the alarm. A member of Great Britain's House of Commons. His name, Winston Churchill. We must stop. Britain must stop. America must stop. Of course we shall do it in the end. We shall sure do it. But how much harder our toil for every day's delay. That is what I have to say to you on this occasion. And let me say, is this a call to war? Does anyone pretend that preparations for resistance against aggression amounts to the unleashing of war? There indeed is a sorry tale. I declare it to be the sole guarantee of peace. The Czechs to preserve peace offered concessions to the Sudeten Germans. The Nazi press continued to harangue the Czechs. It is September 12, 1938. Hitler is speaking at Nuremberg. He denounces the Czechs in a violent speech. President Banish establishes martial law in Czechoslovakia. The following day, negotiations with the Sudeten Germans are broken off by the Czechs. They are ready to fight. Czechoslovakia is prepared to defend her territory and will not voluntarily give up any part of it. The army is equipped with modern arms and the firm determination of the people to defend their democratic government compensates for what may be lacking in the numerical strength of the army. The soldiers know that they would be defending a just cause. Now the incredible. Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain telegraphs Chancellor Adolf Hitler for a meeting. The Fuhrer accepts. He invites Chamberlain to his retreat at Berchtesgaden. The German Chancellor, because the situation seems to me to be one 
in which discussions between him and me may have useful consequences. My policy has always been to try to ensure peace and the Fuhrer's ready acceptance of my suggestion encourages me to hope that my visit to him will not be without result. On September 15th, Chamberlain arrives at the Munich airport. He travels by train to Berchtesgarten. Hitler tells Chamberlain that unless the Sudetenland is turned over to Germany, there will be a general war. Chamberlain returns to London. Yesterday afternoon, I had a long talk with Herr Hitler. It was a frank talk, but it was a friendly one. And I feel satisfied now that each of us fully understands what is in the mind of the other. And later on, perhaps in a few days, I'm going to have another talk with Herr Hitler. Only this time, he has told me that it is his intention to come halfway to meet me. He wishes to spare an old man another such a long journey. Chamberlain meets with Premier Edouard de Lottier of France. It is decided that the Czechs must yield to Germany the area inhabited by the Sudetenland Germans. Prague had not been consulted. The British-French declaration reads, both the French and British governments recognize how great is the sacrifice thus required of Czechoslovakia. However, they have felt it their duty jointly to set forth, frankly, the conditions essential to security. Without the support of France and Great Britain, the Czechs must accept the ultimatum. Their cabinet resigns. Now Chamberlain again flies to Germany. European peace is what I am aiming at, and I hope that this journey may open the way to get it. Hitler in the Rhineland town of Godesburg. Hitler has now gained strength by the Prime Minister's visits. He changes his demands. He becomes more severe. Chamberlain is horrified. He returns to London. After my visits to Germany, I realized vividly how Herr Hitler feels that he must champion other Germans. He told me privately, and last night he repeated publicly 
that after this Sudeten German question is settled, that is the end of Germany's territorial claims in Europe. Now France and Great Britain show some strength. They reject Hitler's latest proposals. France partially mobilizes its army. They will come to the aid of Czechoslovakia if Germany marches. It is Monday, September 20th. Hitler is speaking in the Sportpalast in Berlin. Hitler brutally attacks President Banish of Czechoslovakia. Says the Fuhrer, the Czech state begins with a single lie, and the father of this lie is named Banish. There is now no such thing as the Czechoslovakian nation. The decision now lies in Banish's hands, peace or war. He will accept this offer and give Germans their freedom, or we will fetch this freedom for ourselves and behind me. This the world should know. There marches a different people from that of 1918. makes friendly overtures to Great Britain and France. But the Fuhrer says his demands must be met by October 1st, and after that he cares not what happens to Czechoslovakia. The following day, the British fleet mobilizes. How horrible, fantastic, incredible it is that we should be digging trenches and trying on gas masks here because of a quarrel in a faraway country between people of whom we know nothing. It seems still more impossible that a quarrel which is already settled in principle should be the subject of war. If we have to fight, it must be on larger issues than that. I am myself a man of peace to the depths of my soul. Armed conflict between nations is a nightmare to me. But if I were convinced that any nation had made up its mind to dominate the world by fear of its force, I should feel that it must be resisted. Under such a domination, life for people who believe in liberty would not be worth living. But war is a fearful thing. And we must be very clear before we embark on it that it is really the great issues that are at stake. For the present, I ask you to wait as calmly as you can for the events of the next few days. As long as war has not begun, there is always hope that it may be prevented. And you know that I am going to work for peace till the last moment. Benito Mussolini enters the bargaining. He proposes a four-power meeting to save the peace of the world. The four powers, Great Britain, France, Germany, and Italy. about Czechoslovakia. Proud, majestic Czechoslovakia. Their young men poised to defend the homeland. Their leaders ready to sound the trumpet. Their populace ready to die on the land created for them by Great Britain and France. Now stand alone. They will not be invited to Munich. This is Munich, Germany, calling. The last 11th hour attempt to save the peace of Europe and avert a world war over the Sudeten muddle 
has just begun here in Munich. Senor Mussolini, Mr. Deladier, and Mr. Chamberlain are meeting in the Führerbau. The Führer House, the Führer's Palace. It is 12.30 p.m. midday Thursday, September 29th. The meeting was anticlimactic. Hitler talked. Chamberlain, Daladier, and Mussolini listened. The price for peace in our time. The Czechs lost one-third of their nation, a third of their population, all of their military fortifications. The country that France and Great Britain had created after World War I was in less than 20 years, for all intents and purposes, eliminated from the face of Europe. This is Max Gordon calling from Munich, Germany. Mm -hmm. It is now 8 minutes to 2 o'clock a.m. local time. Exactly 17 minutes ago, Premier Chamberlain of England, Premier Daladay of France, walked out <clears throat> of the assembly room at the first palace here. Benito Mussolini, the Duchy of Italy, followed him shortly afterwards to catch his special train for Italy. The Big Four Conference of Munich has come to a formal close. The four leaders at Munich left the meeting triumphant. All had their hopes fulfilled. Hitler took over Czechoslovakia without losing a man. Mussolini allied himself to the Chancellor as a firm friend and to the world as the instigator of peace. Daladier would not have to meet the French obligation to march with Czechoslovakia. And Chamberlain would be remembered for peace in our time. The Prime Minister was ecstatic upon his return to London. This morning, I had another talk with the German Chancellor, Herr Hitler. And here is the paper which bears his name upon it as well as mine. Some of you perhaps have already heard what it contains, but I would just like to read it to you. We, the German Führer and Chancellor, and the British Prime Minister, have had a further meeting today and are agreed in recognizing that the question of Anglo-German relations is of the first importance for the two countries and for Europe. We regard the agreement signed last night and the Anglo-German naval agreement as symbolic of the desire of our two peoples never to go to war with one another again. October 1st, German armies moved into Czechoslovakia. In the House of Commons, Winston Churchill says, All is over. Silent, mournful, abandoned, broken Czechoslovakia recedes into the darkness. And do not suppose this is the end. This is only the beginning of the reckoning. This is only the first sip the first foretaste of a bitter cup which will be proffered to us year by year 
unless by supreme recovery of moral health and martial vigor, we arise again and take our stand for freedom as in olden time. Then he said, Each one hopes that if he feeds the crocodile enough, the crocodile would eat him last. All of them hope that the storm will pass before their turn comes to be devoured. But I fear, I fear greatly, the storm will not pass. It will rage and it will roar ever more loudly, ever more widely. It will spread to the south, it will spread to the north. Now it was done. It was left for Czechoslovakian Premier General Sirovi to speak to his people. Said the Premier, I am passing through the gravest hour of my life, for I am doing the hardest thing which it has ever fallen to my lot to do. And it would be easier to die than to do. But we were deserted, and we stood alone. Westinghouse Broadcasting Company has brought you Munich, Victory Without Bloodshed, the actual voices and sounds of the most dramatic and tragic era of the 20th century. This program was written, produced, and directed by Bud Greenspan. My name is David Perry. <laughs>